BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Welcome to That Said. I am Michael Zeldin. On today's show, we will be speaking with Mehdi Hassan about his new book, Win Every Argument, The Art of Debating, Persuading, and Public Speaking. Mehdi is an award-winning British-American journalist. He is a former columnist and podcaster at The Intercept and a former presenter at Al Jazeera English. His op-eds have appeared in The Washington Post and New York Times. And currently, he hosts the Mehdi Hassan Show on MSNBC and Peacock, NBC's streaming channel. Mehdi, welcome to That Said. Thank you for having me on. You write in the beginning of this book, we Hassans loved to argue. My -hmm. father would challenge and provoke my sister and me at the dinner table, on long car rides, on foreign holidays. It was he who taught me to question everything to be both curious and skeptical, to take nothing on blind faith, and to relish every challenge and objection. So tell us about, I mean, sort of my cousin Vinny in a way, tell us about you and, and your family, if you wouldn't mind. Yeah, I, I, I say in the book, we are a disputatious bunch. I haven't actually asked my sister or parents if they're unhappy with me for sharing uh, this in the introduction to the book, but I had to kind of come up with a with an origin story, because people keep asking me this, and I had to actually—I've never actually stopped to think about where do I get this zeal from for argument, for debate, for questioning people, which I managed to turn into a, a decent career. Um, it's what I do for a living now. I always joke that you know I used to argue as a kid and get in trouble with my parents and teachers, and now I get paid to argue, which is a which is a great uh, great development in my life. Um, and I do think it partly does come from the you know you know they say nature nurture. It's the way I was brought up was definitely a place where, you know, a Muslim immigrant, Indian Muslim immigrant family, where a lot of other similar families were basically telling their kids to keep their heads down and just do medicine or engineering. And my father, on the other hand, was saying, no, 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 no. let's argue this out. Let's talk about what's in the news. Um, You know, let's talk about politics. And, you know, he encouraged me and my sister, we're both journalists, which is not your average profession for the brown children of immigrants. Normally we end up being doctors, dentists, engineers um, and both my sister and I ended up as journalists because we came from this household where my parents and my father in particular was very uh, pro-debate discussion uh, political dialogue um, speaking out talking about what's in the news and that I've just taken that with me through my life and even now I'll call my dad in England and we'll start talking about we'll start having a row about is Biden gonna win is he the right candidate etc and 
I was thinking, why did you write this book? And in some sense, it's a sort of primer on how to be an effective debater and speech giver and stuff. But you wrote something that I thought was more compelling as an explanation for why you wrote this book. And I'd like you to talk to it. You write that you consider argument and debate to be the lifeblood of democracy, as well as the only surefire way to establish truth. Arguments can help us solve problems, uncover ideas we never would have considered, and hurry our disagreements toward, even begrudgingly, understanding. So, yeah, so I, I, I do you... firmly believe that. I mean, let, let me be honest, that's not an original thought. A lot of people have made that point over the centuries, and I've come late to it, but I've come to it, and I've realized that it's not just something I enjoy doing, arguing and debating, but it is invaluable. It is the very lifeblood of what we consider modern liberal representative democracy. And the industry that I work in, the news media, the fourth estate, uh, cannot survive without good faith debate and disagreement and people exchanging ideas and, you know, engaging in rhetorical combat. So I wrote the book uh, partly because I wanted to give something back. I wanted to show people, look, this is what I've learned over the years. Let me show you how to do it. But also partly because of this moment that we're in, Michael, 2023 in America, democracy genuinely under threat, uh, the press, the media uh, in real chaos in many ways, and our public square dominated by and degraded by kind of grifters, con men, uh, bullshit artists, uh, BS merchants, um, what I call gish gallopers in the book, people who just want to kind of overwhelm us with nonsense and lies and half-truths, authoritarianism, basically. And, you know, the experts on authoritarianism will tell you that, you know, that's one of the first steps on the road to authoritarianism and fascism is to make truth up for grabs, is to make truth something that's uh, subjective uh, and to talk in a way that doesn't allow for the truth to come out. And I wanted to equip people with some of the rhetorical skills to push back. And that's partly why I wrote this book. And you write, you attribute a quote to Joseph Jobert, it is better to debate a question without settling it than to settle a question without debating it. And, yeah, that and, quote goes to my soul and my heart. It's, it annoys a lot of people because people say to me, God, you just won't let things go. But it's genuinely, I do genuinely believe that, you know, there's simply the process, even if the outcome is not what you want of a debate, the process of going through the motions is of massive intellectual and moral value. Absolutely. So let's turn to the book. You have structure in chapters that, walk us through the various components to winning an argument or making a speech, or in my case, a closing argument, because so much of what you said was, oh, yes, of course, that's right. That's, yeah. I hadn't, I hadn't. The lawyers amongst you, yes, there is a, there is a lot of resonant stuff, I would argue. But you articulated in a way that I had just an intuitive feeling. I say, oh, yes, that's right. That's why we do it this way. So that was wonderful. So and it's what I used to do, Michael, till I wrote the book. There's a lot of stuff in the book where I'm like, there's a lot of studies I cite, which I only found while researching the book and thought, wow, I already knew this intuitive, but great. There's some social science to back it up. Well, the book is incredibly well researched. I have to compliment you on that. I had a question. How did you research it? But I want to get to the book. But my goodness, is this a well researched book, Mehdi? So you have a start that says, Winning over an audience, there are three main ways to win over an audience. Know your audience, grab their attention, and connect with them throughout the presentation. So can you walk us through this first rule of the book? 
Yeah, so you cannot overstate how important it is to know your audience. Uh, KYA is the acronym. And it's something, again, I have done intuitively over the years prior to even coming to researching and writing this book, which is anyone invites me to speak anywhere. And the first thing I say is, well, what's the audience? Who are they? Who am I speaking to? Am I speaking to young people, old people? Am I speaking to black people, white people? Am I speaking to Muslims, non-Muslims? Am I speaking to the left or the right? Am I speaking to Americans or Brits? And I ask all these questions because I want to be prepared because there is no point going and giving an argument or a debate or a speech or a presentation that sounds good to us, sounds good to your own ears, but doesn't sound good to a room full of strangers. Um, and I, I quote Billy Wilder in the book, the movie director, who says, you know, one person in an audience might be an imbecile, but a thousand imbeciles sitting together in the dark, that's critical genius. Uh, and it goes back to the idea that the audience is always right. So the first thing you've got to know is know your audience. A lot of people I see stand up and give a presentation without any clue as to how it's being received by the people in front of them. They're saying things that are not even appropriate for the crowd in front of them. Um, so that's super important. You've got to do some legwork before you even enter the room, I say in the book. Um, and then in terms of grabbing their attention, look, we live in an age, Michael, where people are on their smartphones all the time. In general, human beings have low attention spans. And I, I cite research in the book that says we have a shorter attention span than goldfish. Um, but in the 21st century, oh my, we have less attention than ever in human history, given we're distracted by our smartphones and our devices uh, and our social media accounts. So if you're going to uh, get an audience to listen to what you have to say, you have to grab them almost, you know, by the by the scruff of the neck, rhetorically speaking, and get their attention from the get go, because otherwise they'll just tune you out. There's no such thing as a captive audience in 2023. You cannot, uh, you know, you cannot hold your audience hostage. They will just ignore you. They will just start going on their phone and scrolling through their Instagram. So you have to get them very early on. And I talk about different techniques, uh, you know, starting with a provocative question, uh, starting with a personal anecdote, a story, which is a great way to connect with an audience, a curious audience. You've got to grab their attention. And the third thing is, you know, connect with them. Once you've grabbed their attention, how do you sustain that connection? How do you get the audience not to drift off to sleep or start daydreaming or planning the rest of their night? And how do you keep a bond with the audience, which is so crucial, especially if you're in a debate? where you're trying to defeat someone. You need the audience on your side. The audience, I say in the book, is judge, jury, executioner, all in one. And connecting with them, again, requires finding ways to, you know, share parts of yourself with the audience is one advice I give. You know, the audience, as the saying goes, will not just bond with your argument, they'll bond with you as a person. And you cannot um, overstate how important that is, therefore, to find connections, find things you have in common with your audience, flatter your audience. You know, I always make a joke, whichever city I'm in, I was on a book tour recently, Michael, you saw me in DC. I was in New York the night before. In New York, I said, I'm so happy that I'm launching this book in New York. I wouldn't want to launch it anywhere else. It's my favorite city. The next night I said, I'm so happy I'm in DC. It's my home city. I can't, I wouldn't want to be anywhere else. You know, the next, I was in Houston at the weekend. I said, I love being in Houston. It's where my wife is from. So you've got to do that. You've got to do simple stuff. We take it for granted, but that stuff works. You've got to connect with an audience, make them like you. The other thing that you say in this part of the book, though, is to start with a provocative question that creates a yeah. knowledge gap, a gap between what the listeners know and what they don't know. So how do you do that? That, that was, yeah, that, 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 was, that, that, that piece of advice comes from Akash Kari, who's a TEDx speaker, and, and TED, TED Talks, of course, uh, I cite a few of them, and they're, they're fascinating for people who are getting onto the public speaking circuit. It's always good fun to go on YouTube or go on the TED website and watch some of these talks. You know, I always say, watch people doing it. That's the first step to practicing this old chapter, which we may come to on practice. Uh, but in terms of that knowledge gap, yeah, you want to ask a question. So in fact, let me just give you an let me give you an example from the book. In the introduction to the book, uh, very first chapter, I start 
with that question, a provocative question. And I say, what would you do if tens of thousands of lives depended on you winning an argument? Now, the point of that question is to grab the reader's attention. It's a 65,000 word book. I want people to read this book and buy this book if they're standing in a store. I want that question to make them go, oh, what would I do? And what is he even talking about? Well, I'm talking about what happened in ancient Greece during the Peloponnesian War, where thousands of lives did ride on somebody winning an argument. So it's that sense of the human brain has that curiosity. Once you pose a question, people can't help but look, you know, it it is the best way of cancelling out the distraction effect. If somebody's asking you questions, you're not being distracted. You're not looking away. You're not being, you're not daydreaming. You're trying to think, you're either trying to answer that question for yourself what is the answer to that? Or you're thinking, wow, I can't wait for them to tell me the answer. The other thing that you uh, talk about in this opening chapter is start with a story. And it made me smile because when I was at the Justice Department and I was hiring wannabe trial lawyers and there's a room of people like me who was conducting the interview and they'd say, well, you know, where did you go to school and what grade did you get in criminal justice and all this stuff? And when it gets to be my turn, I'd say, tell me a story. Tell me, tell me, tell me something about you. And I thought like you, and I want you to talk about it, not me. If they couldn't tell me a story that interested me, how in God's name were they going to be trial lawyers? Yes. And of course, um, you know, when you think about trial lawyers, you think about Hollywood movies, some of the best Hollywood courtroom scenes are people telling stories. I always think of Matthew McConaughey's closing arguments in A Time to Kill. Uh, when he gets the jury to shut their eyes and listen to him tell that story. So look, the human brain was not built, and I cite the research in the book, to absorb cold, hard facts. One of the great mistakes that liberals in particular make when trying to win over an audience, a skeptical audience, or push a political message is to just overload you with facts and figures and data and research and studies and quotes And that's just not how we absorb information. It's not how human beings are persuaded. The human brain is built for storytelling. It's hardwired for narrative, a beginning, a middle, and an end. That's how the brain follows things. That's how the brain stays in tune. In fact, I cite research in the book from Yuri Hassan, a neuroscientist at Princeton, who's done fMRI scanning of the brain and found that when two people are in a room and one is telling the other a story, their brains actually sync up. The same parts of the brain light up in the listener as well as in the person telling the story. That's how in tune we get with a speaker when they're telling a story. So storytelling is very powerful. It's a very potent method of persuasion. And the best form of storytelling is personal storytelling, telling an anecdote about yourself, telling a story about your own life, because it allows the audience, again, to empathize with you, identify with you, connect with you, put themselves in your shoes, bond with you and not just your argument. So uh, I actually, again, I, I try and follow my own lessons in the book. I try not to be a hypocrite. So the book itself follows the same structure. The book itself, uh, each chapter of the 16 chapters in the book starts with a story. It starts with a story either from my own life, my own career, or it starts with a story from ancient Greece, from Demosthenes, uh, the great orator, or it starts with a debate, a story from a presidential debate uh, from Michael Dukakis against George Bush Sr. in 1988. Uh, so I try and start each chapter with a story, just as I would start each speech and each argument with a story. Exactly. But you've just now segued well into my next discussion chapter, which is feelings, not just facts. You quote That's the Dale- most important chapter of the book. And you quote Dale Carnegie. How to Win Friends and Influence People, a book my father gave me in middle school and told me to sort of read brief and no cold this yeah. book as he was projecting me into a law career that he wanted for me. 
And Carnegie is quoted as saying, when dealing with people, let us remember we are not dealing with creatures of logic. We are dealing with creatures of emotion. And Jeff Nussbaum, who was a speechwriter for Biden, wrote a wonderful book called Undelivered. And he says, in crafting a good speech, you have to remember that people don't hear what you wanted to say. They hear how you said what you did say. So talk about this pathos, ethos, logos, feelings. This is is in the first section of the book. The book is divided into three sections. And the first section is on the fundamentals of debate. And of course, I do my own version of pathos, logos, ethos, which is the Aristotelian uh, trio of uh, appeals, the emotional appeal, pathos, the logical appeal, logos, and the appeal from character and credibility, which is ethos. And I divide the chapters up in that way. But in this chapter on feelings, on pathos, I make the point that when it comes to pathos versus logos, pathos beats logos almost every time. And this is something we've known for over 2000 years. And unfortunately, a lot of Democrats, a lot of people in the Democratic Party in America, a lot of people in the Labour Party in England, a lot of people on the centre left across the world just have not internalised this point. They don't understand the appeal of emotion. They end up being robots. They end up being rational calculators. They end up being, you know, no disrespect, but, you know, trial lawyers, which is great in terms of bringing evidence. But in politics, you need to move people. You need to rouse people. Uh, you need to emote. And I get, you know, I, I've given this example before in other interviews. You know, you look at 2016 and you look at Donald Trump, who is saying build a wall, ban Muslims and lock her up. Very emotive, demagogic appeals, but they're memorable. They resonate. They get his crowd all worked up. We still talk about them today, uh, seven, eight years later. And Hillary Clinton was coming along saying, well, here's my 17 point health care plan. Here's my 12 point education plan, which I'm sure were great plans. But nobody votes on that basis. That doesn't get people to the polls. That doesn't rouse them. That's not memorable. And there's a great saying that I use in the book, which is people may not remember what you told them, but they'll remember how you made them feel. And feeling is so important. There's a lot of science on this as well, and I cite it in the chapter, which suggests that human beings, we lie to ourselves and we say that we are great rational calculators, that we have come to a conclusion or a political belief or viewpoint because we've considered all the evidence and we've come to a hard-headed conclusion. That's just not how we operate. The reality is that we tend to feel our way towards a conclusion, and then we look for evidence to back it up. We don't actually think our way towards a conclusion. So if you're going to try and convince people to come on board with your argument, You need to appeal to them in their hearts, not just in their heads. You need to have an emotional appeal. So I lay out in the book different ways in which you can connect emotionally. Again, storytelling, absolutely important. Um, Showing, not just telling. There's no point having a kind of robotic frozen face. If you're angry, show your anger. If you're happy, show you're happy. If you're sad, show you're sad. Like let your body language speak as well. And of course, words, choose your words carefully. Um, this is what speechwriters, good speechwriters do so well. Use the right language, use the vivid uh, metaphors, use the best adjectives to really get people worked up. If something's not true, don't just say it's inaccurate. Say it's a lie. You know, connect with people where they are, not where you want them to be. What was so interesting to me in the business of choosing your words carefully, I interviewed Julian Zelizer. He wrote a book called Burn, Burning, Down, Burning Down the House about Newt Gingrich. Yes. And in in the book, he cites a 1995 GOPAC, the Conservative Political Action Committee that Gingrich founds. And in it, there's a memo where Gingrich is saying the key mechanism is to control the language that you're talking about. As to your opponents, you have to use words that sort of degrade them. As to yourself, you have to use words that are positive and 
listening. And, and, this, and, this, and this could come straight from the mouth of Aristotle and his landmark work rhetoric that was written over two millennia ago. Like we have known this stuff. Look at Frank Luntz, Michael, who was a big pollster and advisor to the GOP during that period. He's the guy who comes up with, you know, we should call, you know, uh, our polluting bills, clean skies bills. You know, he was the man, you know, who, who, who made the point on the right about the importance of language and the importance of rhetoric, climate change, uh, how to talk about climate change in a way that Republicans could dodge responsibility for the damage done to the environment. And I quote Luntz in the book talking about, you know, uh, a compelling story can be more, even if untrue, uh, can be more appealing and more persuasive than a dry recitation of the facts. And he's yeah. right, sadly. You write in the book that you think that Aristotle may have gotten it wrong. He gave equal weight to the ethos, pathos, logos um, yeah. part of this thing, but you think otherwise, and you've talked about it. Yeah, I, I do, and, and I cite the scientific own. evidence as well, which is why the scientific evidence suggests that feelings beat. I mean, the, the role that emotion plays uh, in determining what we do, how we think, how quickly we think, how quickly we react. Scientists are still working on it. We're finding out new stuff every week. So, though, you say in the next part of the argument that that's all well and good, but you still have to show your receipts. You still have to. Yeah. It can't just be an emotional appeal. It has to be emotional appeal that's founded. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's, the, it's the stool with three legs, right? You need all right. three. The fact that one is more important than the other two doesn't make the other two redundant. You still need to work on your credibility and do down your opponent. That's why I did a chapter on ad hominem arguments, provocatively, controversially. And you still need to have your receipts, which is why I did a chapter on receipts or logos. You still need your empirical evidence. You, and people say, well, does that even work anymore? We live in a post-fact age. We live in an age where one in four Republicans believes in the QAnon uh, conspiracy theory. And I say, look, it is much harder, I agree, in 2023 to convince people with facts, but it's not impossible. And I do cite data in the book that says people can still be persuaded with factual evidence. Don't give up on factual evidence. Don't buy into the Rudy Giuliani, Kellyanne Conway alternative facts view of the world. But talk a little bit about when you say show your receipt, you tell stories yeah. of it. But I'd like this listening audience to hear some of the stories about what does showing your receipts mean? So, so for me as an interviewer, for example, I'm known for being the guy who says, hey, why do you believe X, Y, Z? And the guest saying, I never said that. I don't believe that. And me saying, well, actually, you did say that in 1997, September the 9th, at this conference on this day in front of this crowd. And here it is. Um, I'm the guy who likes to bring receipts to interviews. When, when I interviewed John Bolton, uh, and I talk about this in the book, and he denied speaking at a at a rally for an Iranian anti-regime terrorist group that was at the time prescribed by the United States State Department. He said, oh, Mehdi, you've got your facts wrong. I spoke to them after they were unprescribed by Hillary Clinton. And I said, nope. Uh, we went and watched the speech. Your speech is on YouTube. You're in Paris speaking to this group, the MEK, when they were prescribed. It's a great moment for a guest to say, hey, you've got your facts wrong. And you say, ah, I've got the receipts right here. I've got the clip. I've got the quote. I've got the source. And so that's me as an interviewer, but the same applies in a debate. The same applies in a speech. You want to be able to say, hey, don't take my word for it. Here are the facts. Here's what the data says. Here's what the science says. Here's what the authority on this Professor X says. You want to have your evidence and you want to be able to bring your receipts. And, and, and another example I quote in the book, a, a rather brilliant one, which destroyed a career. You remember Michael Bloomberg was trying to be the Democratic nominee for president in 2020. People forget there was a short window where he was zooming up the polls shortly after announcing. And he was, you know, second or third behind kind of Biden in some of the state and Bernie in, in a couple of the key states. And then the debate happens in Las Vegas. 
Michael Bloomberg makes the mistake of showing up to a Democratic Party debate and going on stage and standing next to Elizabeth Warren. And in 59 seconds, she destroys him. Senator Warren destroys Michael Bloomberg by bringing receipts on the women he's mistreated or accused of treating badly, the NDAs he's made them sign, the awful statements he's made over the course of his career. She knocks it all out in 59 seconds flat, and the man doesn't recover. Within weeks, he's pulled out of the Democratic presidential race. That is the power of a good receipt, well deployed. So that's the key, though. You say timing is everything, right? Yeah. Sometimes people want to just overload you with facts at the beginning of a speech or argument. I say, wait for the right moment. Wait for the moment where someone's denying something so you can say, really? You're denying that? Hold on. I have here X, Y, Z. So timing can be crucial in terms of kind of getting that mic drop moment, Um, but also looking for receipts in the moment. Sometimes you'll be arguing with someone and they say something at the beginning of the conversation. At the end of the conversation, they say something that's the opposite. That's your moment to say, hold on. You just said exactly the opposite five minutes ago. We all heard you say the exact opposite. So use receipts that are made in the moment too. And I want to just jump ahead. I'm going to come back to play the ball and play the man, but this business of active listening, critical listening is exactly to the point you made. You say, listen, don't just speak. When people talk, listen completely. Most people never listen. There is a difference between hearing and listening. So talk about that. Because I am guilty all the time of someone saying to me, you're not listening. I say, yes, yeah. I am. And I repeat back the words they said. Like, a Yeah, I do that too. And it, it, can, it can make spouses very frustrated. My wife, when she heard I was writing a chapter on listening, just burst into laughter. And then she looked at me and she said, you're writing a chapter on listening. You're a horrible listener. I am, which is why I had to write the chapter. Um, look, so walk us, walk we're, we're not good. We think we're good listeners and we're not, most of us. And what we are doing is, you know, we might hear something, but are we actually absorbing it? Listening is the, you know, the act of actually processing the information, engaging with what we've heard. You know, hearing, you know, we walk down the street, we hear all sorts of sounds, they're background noise, cars in the distance, people chatting, people riding their bikes, we're not listening. But if a car's coming towards us, and we suddenly hear a screeching of the brakes, and the car's about to hit us, we're listening, we take action, we move, that's listening to the sounds around us. And in debates, we think we're listening, but we're not, we're, we're waiting for our chance to speak. That's what we're doing. A lot of time in an argument, a discussion, a dialogue, a debate, we think we're listening to the other person, but really we're thinking, here's what I'm going to say as soon as I get a chance to speak. And that's a mistake on multiple levels. It's a mistake, also, you know, basically, it's, it's a moral error. In, it's disrespectful. But also, from a self-serving, cynical point of view, you're screwing yourself over by not paying attention to what's being said around you, because how are you supposed to rebut and debunk what's being said if you weren't paying attention when it was said? So I take great pride in debates, at least in paying very close attention to what's being said around me, waiting for a moment for my opponent to slip up, waiting for something they've said that's a contradiction uh, to what they've said earlier, waiting for a factual inaccuracy that I can then correct or fact check. So that requires critical listening, paying very close attention, absorbing what's being said, engaging in the moment. You say it is a very dynamic process where you're consciously absorbing, comprehending, and evaluating the information the speaker is giving you in real time. Very different than... And that requires certain skills. And I say in the book, for example, one thing you should be doing is taking notes. You know, we've lost the art of note taking, uh, old fashioned pen and paper. Make a note of what people are saying around you in that moment. Don't forget a thought that you have that could be a good rebuttal later. Pay attention. And sometimes we think we're paying attention, but we're not writing stuff down. And then we forget. It's actually quite a good thing. And I, I mentioned, you know, some of the famous billionaires like the Bransons and Bill Gates of this world who swear by note taking.
But you have a different thing also in listening, and that is empathetic listening. So tell us what it is. And then as a story goes, because we like stories, right? Yeah. Tell us the story of the Bill Clinton and yes. Herbert Walker Bush debate. That's a great story. So, so empathetic listening, so critical listening is what you should be doing when your opponent is speaking. Empathetic listening is what you should be doing when an audience member is speaking. When you're trying to listen into what an, a, a person in the audience, a random passerby, someone you want to appeal to is speaking, you want to show empathetic listening. And that means being fully present in the moment. That means putting yourself in the other person's shoes, really absorbing what they have to say and trying to understand how they feel, right? You're not trying to shoot them down or knock them down. You're trying to understand how they feel in the moment. So that, again, go back to my point about the audience so that they can identify with you, so that they can connect with you, so that they can bond with you, so they can feel respected. In fact, they are more likely to listen to what you have to say if they feel heard. Like we undervalue how much human beings just want to be heard. You don't have to agree with them. But just give them the respect, the dignity of being heard, having their voice heard, and not being on your phone as they speak, not looking at your watch, as George Bush Sr. famously did in the 1992 town hall in Richmond, Virginia, the very first town hall in U.S. presidential debate history. It's Clinton, it's Ross Perot and Bush Sr. on stage, sitting on stools, and a woman in the audience asks about the national debt, but she has a bit of a curveball. She says, how has the national debt affected you personally? And Bush Sr. first, he's not even listening to it on live TV. The cutaway shows him looking at his watch, which is... Not a good start. You, you you look bored. You look like you don't want to be there. And then when he comes to answer the question, he's not paying real attention to what she's trying to get at, which is it's affected her personally and her life. How's it affected his? And he just can't do it. He starts talking about interest rates. He starts talking about visiting black churches, irrelevant topics. And he just gets irritable and cranky. And he says later on to an interviewer years later, I just wanted that crap to be over. I just wanted to go home. He didn't enjoy the setting. Bill Clinton was built for town halls. Bill Clinton is the master of empathy, the man from hope. He's practiced in his hotel room. And again, I have a whole chapter on the importance of practice. Things that we think are spontaneous tend not to be spontaneous. He's practiced with his aides sitting on a stool, which the others haven't practiced. He's practiced getting up and walking around his hotel room. So when she asks the question, he gets off the stool, unlike Perot and Bush. He walks towards her. He looks her straight in the eye and he says, how has it affected you? And he allows her to tell her story about her life and her struggles. And in that moment, he's won that debate and probably won the presidential election. And Jeff Nussbaum, again, in his book Undelivered, says in writing for Biden, Biden is sort of a fingertip politician, is what he called him. He, he gets his meaning from the room. He says he wants to see things through the eyes of the people he is trying to reach. Why does it matter to them? And that that now he doesn't. And Biden is very good at that in in town halls, uh, in rallies, on the campaign trail. You know, we've seen the empathy. He's a fa- he's a husband who lost a wife and child. He's a father who lost an adult child, and that comes across. He's very empathetic with people who suffer. So, backing up to an earlier chapter, this is sort of counterintuitive. It was counterintuitive to to me in a sense, which was your chapter called "Play the Ball." and the man. Yeah, my so, favorite chapter. So um, uh, talk it, it through. It is a counterintuitive chapter. It's a provocative chapter. I feel it, it needed to be written. And I just need to unpack it for people. So when you're in debate club, when you're taught argument, debate, and I'm sure when you were in like law school, Michael, the, the, the thesis is, the advice is, you play the ball, not the mat. You engage in the argument, not the person making the argument. That is considered to be an ad hominem, and that is considered to be a logical fallacy. For the idea being that the merits or demerits of a particular argument or claim are are unrelated to the person making it. The person making it might be a bad person. That doesn't make the argument wrong. And that does make sense logically. But rhetorically speaking, 
You've got to put logic to one side and just engage in a rhetorical strategy. When you come to rhetorical strategies, if you're trying to convince a room of people to believe you and not your opponent, you have to engage in the ethos. That's the third appeal that we haven't talked about yet. The personal credibility, character, qualifications, credentials, expertise of the people involved in the argument. And you want to boost your own ethos and do down your opponents. And the best way to do that is to go ad hominem. What do I mean by that? Not just being verbally abusive, gratuitously in a way that Donald Trump say was. Although, to be fair to Donald Trump, as much as we don't like his kind of racist and uh, demeaning and often sexist insults, they work, sadly. They do. He destroyed 16 Republican candidates in 2016 by giving them childish nicknames. You know, Low Energy Jeb, Lion Ted, Little Marco. It worked, I'm sorry to say. But what I'm saying is... the. Three ad hominems I say that you shouldn't be afraid to use in a debate are, number one, the abusive ad hominem, which sounds bad, but I'm not saying, you're not calling someone fat or ugly. You're saying, actually, if there is a moral issue that is relevant to the debate, for example, the person you're debating is dishonest, has a long history of lying to people, a demonstrable history of falsehoods. Of course, you should tell the audience that person is dishonest. That is not an irrelevant point. That's a very relevant point. They need to know that what they're being told might not be true because the person has bad form when it comes to telling the truth. That is an abusive ad hominem. I would argue is very relevant and very necessary. The second form of ad hominem I think that is legitimate is the circumstantial ad hominem, which is to point out a conflict of interest. If you're debating with someone on climate change and the other person says climate change is BS, it doesn't exist, it's all made up, and they're paid by ExxonMobil, maybe you should share with the audience that, yeah, maybe maybe they're not coming from the best of good faith places. They're actually paid by fossil fuel producers. And the third point I would say, the third argument, the ad hominem is the you quote que, the you too ad hominem, the hypocrisy point. And people will say, well, look, the fact that someone doesn't practice what they preach, the fact that someone's a hypocrite doesn't make the argument wrong. Agreed. But it does mean that your audience should take extra care, extra scrutiny when they're listening to that person. If you're debating with someone who says abortion is always evil, always immoral, always child murder, but they happen to have paid their mistress to have had an abortion, as many Republican politicians sadly have, are you telling me that it's not legitimate to raise that issue? Now, I agree. It doesn't affect the merits or demerits of the abstract argument over abortion, whether the fetus feels pain, you know, when does viability to begin? Agree. But the idea that you should not point out to a neutral third party that, hey, the person telling you that abortion is evil and immoral also happens to engage in the practice, which may make you think again, if they can't even stick to what they're saying is a universal moral principle, maybe it's not the moral principle they think it is. I believe that's a relevant argument to raise, even if it's slightly uncomfortable, it's awkward. You know, people don't like to get ad hominem, not because it's a logical fallacy, Michael, but because it's kind of and it's kind of weird to get in someone's face and say something bad about them. And I'm saying, no, sometimes you got to do it. Sorry. And there's this chap, Aristotle, who tends to agree with you. He says that persuasion is achieved by the speaker's personal character when the speech is so spoken as to make us think him credible. Yes. Yeah. And, and there's no way that you want the other person, your opponent or adversary, to be seen as the one with credibility. And, you know, Michael, you're a lawyer. You know this better than most lawyers go off to expert witnesses on the stand all the time. If, a, if you're in a court case and you're the other side's counsel has brought a doctor to testify about something, you're going to go and say, hold on, how good a doctor are you? Do you have a history of making mistakes? What are your qualifications? You don't want the jury to think that guy's a great doctor. So we do, you know, lawyers do this all the time. And I'm saying it's a completely justifiable and understandable strategy. Turning the corner a little bit on these uh, sort of 
three challenges, abusive, circumstantial, and, and never had a two quote question. I want to turn to something which is dear to my heart, which is make them laugh. My father was one who always believed that uh, laughter is the best medicine. And I had a friend whose mom used to say, laughter sure cures a soul. So talk about laughter and the importance of it in the uh, proposition of your book. So, yes, laughter is the best medicine. Laughter is a universal language. Uh, I point out in the book that there's, you know, there's studies being done by people like scientists at UCL that show from Britain to Namibia, uh, the same emotions in relation to humor come to light when people are speaking. Like it is genuinely a universal emotion and reaction. And look, there is a science to humor, not to how you tell a joke, because that's subjective, but the impact of that joke. And the impact of that joke is it makes us feel good. You know, it, it sets off certain parts of the brain. Um, it gives us our reward, our dopamine hits. And it provides what the social scientists call social glue. When everyone's laughing, there's a connection. And you want that connection. Again, I'll say it again. You want to connect with your audience. You want to connect with the people you're trying to persuade. Laughter, humor is another way of connecting. It's a way of getting people to open up to you. As I point out in the book, if people are laughing at something you said, well, A, they're not snoozing. They're paying attention by definition. And B, they're not annoyed by you. They're not angry at you by definition because they're laughing. So you've already neutralized two big problems of public speaking, uh, you know, boring your crowd and pissing off your crowd. Laughter counteracts both of those things. What it does is it, it helps the crowd identify with you. It is a social glue and you get the credit for it. You get the credit for bringing a room together. There's a common identity, a common bond forged. And I cite John Cleese, the famous comedian, former Monty Python, former Faulty Towers man, who says, you know, if I can get you to laugh with me, you like me and you're more likely to agree with what I have to say. I mean, it sounds obvious, Department of Bleeding Obvious, but we don't really take it to heart when we are constructing our arguments and debates. There's a lot of humorless speeches given out there. There's a lot of dry presentations given. You need to use humor to kind of diffuse tension in the room. Uh, you need to use humor to kind of bond with the audience. And you need to use humor also as a weapon, uh, ridicule, to come back to the ad hominem chapter, make fun of your opponents. And this goes back to the ancient Greek and ancient Roman courtrooms where people like Cicero used humor as a way of ridiculing and belittling their opponent and making themselves and their own arguments look good. So humor provides multiple different um, benefits when you're public speaking. And you cite the playwright Herb Gardner as saying, once you get people laughing, they are listening and you can tell them almost anything. Yes, indeed. And, and, the, and the way you do that, and I have some tips in the book about, you know, yeah, so human, walk, every, us, every, walk us through the tips. Okay? Yes, every person is different. And look, there's no, there's certainly no cookie cutter approach to comedy by definition. And what I say to people is, number one, you're not a stand up comedian. My advice is not to go out and be a stand up comic. That's not what you're good at. That's not what people are expecting, and it's a waste of time. But what you can do is make humor an extension of your own personality. Make humor an extension of your own arguments. Try and make jokes about the subject at hand, not random, irrelevant things, and test out your humor beforehand on friends and families so you don't crash and burn. But, you know, some of the things I say to do is be self-deprecating. Make fun of yourself. You can't go wrong. No one's going to be offended except yourself. And people enjoy self-deprecating humor. I often talk about the fact that I have no skills in life. And the only, you know, the only thing God gave me was a big mouth. And I monetize that. I often open a speech with that. And that gets people, you know, people understand where you're coming from. Ronald Reagan's famous line uh, to Mondale when his age is 
brought up. What does he do? He says, I won't use my opponent's age and inexperience against him. He makes a joke out of the fact that he's the older candidate. Um, spontaneity is very important. You can't practice everything. Sometimes you just got to find a moment uh, to kind of make a lighthearted remark. And expression, you know, use your face, uh, you know, raise an eyebrow, smile. That's another form of getting other people to smile and laugh with you. But certain things you shouldn't do, is, as I say, don't be a stand-up comic, but also don't be gratuitously offensive. You're trying to win people over. Persuasion means you don't want to be offending people. Don't go over the top and be, you know, think you're doing a stand-up routine with joke after joke after joke. Less is more. And don't be wooden. Don't, you know, people think, I'm going to tell you a joke now. Don't do that in any kind of presentation or speech. Let it be natural. Let it be spontaneous. Let it be extension of what you're talking about. And that is a way that you can get an audience on board. Some of our great speakers, think of Barack Obama, think of even Joe Biden, you know, the way that they get people laughing with them. You look at someone like Hillary Clinton, who's not considered to be one of the great speakers of our time, humor didn't come naturally. It does come to her husband more naturally. So I think it's very important where, you know, if you can get people laughing with you, it's, it's, it really, really helps you in getting your points across. It's a force out Is there a corollary to this, which is if you can't tell a joke or a funny story, don't? Yes. Do you- know your limits. Don't do that. But what you can do at a very minimum, Michael, is smile, is have a happy attitude, um, especially at the start of a presentation, as part of a lecture. And look, I don't believe that anyone is completely 100% unfunny. As I say, you may not be some great storyteller or raconteur, but even if it's something small, you know, uh, there's a line uh, I often use when I'm at Muslim gatherings, uh, you know, when, when, when I'm giving, when I'm starting a talk and I say, look, I'm the last guy between you and food, and nobody wants to be the last guy between Muslims and food. It's just one line. It's a throwaway remark. Also, you can use jokes from other people, like quote people. I'm not saying plagiarize, but you can cite people. I always say, um, you know, I always, you know, Chris Rock is someone, uh, you know, there's a, there's a line from Chris Rock that I, that I sometimes quote. You know, there's people, if you like a comedian, feel free to use their line. Say, in the words of X, Y, Z, that'll get a laugh. Fine, you've outsourced your laugh to someone else, but you've still got that laugh. You know, it's funny, Mehdi, when I was a young trial lawyer, we used to be able to choose our own juries. We conducted our own voir dire. And there are all these different rules about when you use your peremptory challenges, those which are for any reason except, you know, race or sex, things like that that are prohibited constitutionally. And I used to always try to tell a little joke because I knew in the course of a trial, I'm a wise guy and I would say something smart alecky. And I would say something smart alecky at the very beginning, and I would strike the jurors who didn't smile. That's thinking smart. that if they didn't, yeah, yeah. Of, they're not going to identify with you. They're not going to appreciate your style. Yeah. And they're not going to like my client. They're not going to believe them. Yeah. And then I'm going to feel guilty. That's, that's I'm a great feel, move. I'm going to feel guilty that's for the smart. rest of my life. Yeah. So there is this rule of threes, which yeah. you talk about. And those of us who, my son is in the film business and you always know it takes three before in back to the future, the mad scientist is able to plug in the cord so that Michael J. Fox can go back to you. It's always three in, in cinema, but it's an important discussion that you have about this rule of three in the context of debate and argument. And so can you walk us through it in that context? Yeah, so it's, it's a crucial rule to debate It's a crucial rule to storytelling. It's a crucial rule to writing articles. It's a crucial rule to doing plays. It's a crucial rule to movies, as you say. That that basic narrative structure, beginning, a middle, and end. 
um, you know, the, the body of a word, introduction, the middle, the conclusion. You know, this idea of three things both provides us with structure and cohesion to your presentation, to your argument. I always have three reasons I say in the book. You can ask me anything. Why do I like, why do I like Marvel movies over DC movies? I'll give you three reasons. My friends laugh at me because over the most trivial things, I'll say one, two, three, A, B, C. I always have three reasons. Why? And again, this is something to go back to the start of our conversation. It's something I've always done intuitively, but while writing the book, I discover, hey, there's some science behind this. I interviewed Nelson Cowan, uh, who's a who's a professor and an expert in this field. He's a cognitive psychologist at University of Missouri. And he points out that the human mind cannot digest more than three pieces of information, cannot hold on to. Our short-term working memory cannot retain or process more than three pieces of information. And that's why we break things into three. Back in the day, it used to be seven. George Miller of Harvard had a famous paper where it was, you know, uh, know, it was five, sorry, because uh, the magic number was between three and seven, and he came to five chunks. And now these uh, psychologists say it's three. Three is the magic number, as as the famous song goes. And what that means in practice is, if you're making an argument, have three reasons. Have a political, a moral, and an economic reason. You know, have a... You know, have an ABC. It is the way that you'll connect with people. It's how the human brain will retain that information. It goes back to our childhoods, Michael. I mean, think of all, you know, three little pigs, three billy goats gruff, three blind mice. We've been hearing three, three, three since we were children. Uh, And now we expect things in threes. If I say first, second, you naturally think there's going to be a third. So give people a third. And it also provides you with a roadmap. If you tell people today, I'm going to tell you three things, that's it. You've got them hooked. You've connected with them at the beginning. They know now they have to stay with you till the third point. You've given them that roadmap. You know how to get from A to B. Um, And as I say, structure-wise, it prevents you from rambling. It allows you to be able to say, okay, this is my introduction. This is my body. This is my conclusion. And within my body, I have three main points. So three is very much a magic number. It's, It's crucial for me. And again, I tried to follow the principle in my own book. Uh, each chapter is divided into three arguments, three pieces of evidence, three reasons. You know, when I was teaching in law school and people would ask me about preparing an argument, and I, like you said, you know, beginning, middle and end, I used to tell them, go listen to the Beatles song, She Loves You. It's the perfect speech, argument, whatever. Three choruses followed by She Loves You. And if you can do that, yeah. you won't be, won't be the Beatles, but you'll have nope. a pretty... I mean, organized we, we, we do know the rule of three from popular culture. I actually start the chapter with a quote from Goldfinger from the James Bond villain, who says, Mr. Bond, they have a saying in Chicago, once is happenstance, twice is coincidence, the third time is enemy action. Three is what really makes for a conclusion. You know when the, the number three is used, there is a fullness, a roundness, a conclusiveness to it. Confidence is everything, is it not, Mehdi? A hundred percent. So you have 10%. Let me just tell the listening audience, there are chapters in here that we will not have time to discuss. But many, if uh, if there's something that you want to throw in, such as the art of the zinger or the gish galloper, please do. But I want to, in our time, get to confidence is everything because it is so much of everything in making speeches and in, in debates. And so talk about Talk about confidence is everything and doing your yes. homework, because those things, doing yes. your homework and having confidence seem to be. Yes, they're two work. separate chapters, but they follow from one another. And they're in the third section of the book, which is the behind the scenes, the preparation section, which begins with the confidence chapter. Look, I cannot overstate how important confidence is. 
Um, you look at someone like Donald Trump, Michael. I mean, he is where he is because he's confident. He's overconfident, right? He's got to where he is because he hasn't allowed what other people might think is humility or nervousness or restraint to stop him from getting to where he is. Confidence as a public speaker is key. You cannot be a successful public speaker. You cannot be a winning debater if you do not have confidence, right? It is at the heart of everything. In fact, you can win even without facts, figures, Great arguments if you're confident. Confidence is so important that if you have enough of it and your opponent doesn't, you can actually win an argument simply through the sheer force of confidence, right? And what's interesting is I quote Mark Twain at the beginning of the chapter that there are two types of speakers, those that are nervous and those that are liars. His point being that we're all nervous. Even me, and I talk, I, I tell the story in the book about how the first time I went on BBC One's Question Time, which is the biggest uh, uh, political panel show in, in England, watched by millions of people every week. I was super nervous, but I couldn't give that away. I had to project confidence. And I talk about the importance of projecting confidence if you don't have it, faking it till you make it. But look, the key point is this. Jerry Seinfeld tells a story. Um, he does a, he does a routine in his stand-up act, as I just mentioned, if you don't, you know, to quote a comedian. Seinfeld says he cites the polling data. There's an opinion poll, Michael, that shows that the number one fear in America for Americans is public speaking. Americans say they're more afraid of standing in front of a crowd than anything else. Death is number two. Number one fear of public speaking, number two, dying. So Seinfeld has this line. He says, that means that if you're at a funeral, you'd prefer to be in the casket than giving the eulogy, right? That's how afraid we are. And it really brings home how much we as, a, as, a, as ordinary people lack confidence to speak in front of a crowd. So I say in this book, look, confidence is not something innate. It's not something you're born with. Uh, it's not just an attribute. It's something you can develop. It's a skill. It's something, a belief in yourself that you yourself can build up. How? You can do it by surrounding yourself with the right people. You can do it by visualizing success, I point out. You know, having that vision of success before you've done it, which is something I've done. And you can have it, you can build it up by taking risks. You can start small. You can speak in front of five people if you lack confidence. Then start speaking in front of 10 or 15 people at the family table or a family gathering. Then in front of 30 people, maybe in your class at university or in your office. And then in front of 300 people or in front of 3 million people on live TV. So you've got to kind of build up to everything. And you've got to have those techniques that allow you to build confidence. And then I say in the book, even if you fail, if you try visualizing success, you try taking risks, you surround yourself with the right people, keep good company, people who build you up. Not ne- Don't surround yourself with negative people who always say you can't do it. Surround yourself with positive people who say, hey, that was great, you can do it. But if all that still fails, you can still project confidence, Michael. You can still give the impression to your audience or to your opponent that you have that confidence, even if inside, you know, your stomach is a flutter, you're sweating like crazy. And you can do that with body language, uh, by, you know, standing up straight, keeping your shoulders square, keeping your chin and head up. You can do it through projecting your voice. If you're speaking quietly, if you sound feeble, audience won't trust you, won't follow you. And you can do that by making eye contact, Michael. Again, Department of Bleeding Obvious, but we don't do it. We look away. We look down. We look at our shoes. You've got to look people straight in the eye. You've got to, if, you, if an audience is in front of you, you've got to make eye contact with different parts of the audience. You've got to scan the room. You've got to look like you are the guy they want to listen to, they want to agree with, and they need to follow. I worked with a trial lawyer in my youth, and we would say of that lawyer, often wrong, never in doubt. And <laughs> And, well, and- I say in the book that confidence is what allows you to both stand up after you've been knocked down when you think everything's gone to shit, but it also allows you to say, uh-uh, you're wrong, I'm right, even if in your head you think, ah, oh, I might not be. That's what exactly. confidence allows you to do. 
Well, and this trial lawyer who I would say of often wrong, never in doubt, I never saw her lose a trial. She was brilliant. It's your expression of be like a duck, right? Yeah. <laughs> and that, and that, and that kind of, that, that's the keep calm, carry on chapter that follows the confidence chapter, the Michael Caine line that, you know, uh, you know, his quote is be like a duck, calm on the surface, but always paddling like the dickens underneath. Um, Look, they all go together, these chapters, Michael. The, the point of this third section of the book, the book for your listeners, I know we're coming to an end, but the book is divided into three sections. The first section is on the fundamentals of debate, the pathos, the logos, the ethos, the listening. Um, the, the middle section is the kind of fun techniques, the tricks of the trade, the spicy stuff, the art of the zinger, the one-liner, um, the, 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 the way to stop a gish galloper, someone who's trying to just steamroll you with bullshit. Um, you know, uh, the rule of three, these tricks and techniques. And then you get to section three, which I call behind the scenes. And it's behind the scenes because it's building up your confidence. It's keeping calm. It's practice and preparation. It's doing your research. I have a chapter called doing your homework. No one likes to do homework, but I pride myself in doing homework. People say, how do you, how do, you do all these debates? How do you win all these arguments? How do you have all these facts and figures? Because I did my homework. You very graciously said at the start of the book, you know, how did you do all this research? Great research, a well-researched book. Yeah, because I wanted to make sure that anything I try and do, and I say this, you're trying to win an argument. You know the best way to win an argument? To know more about the subject than your opponent does. To know more about their argument than they do. And that requires doing your homework, doing research. That requires brainstorming. That requires being able to be a good researcher, whether it's on Google or uh, whichever other method of research you use. That means taking time out to find receipts. And here's the best part of it. When you have done your research and your homework, you're not only better prepared for the argument, you not only have your zingers and your receipts ready to deploy, but you're also more confident. The best way of building up confidence is to have a great body of work below you. Why would you lack confidence if you know that you have all the facts on your side, if you've done the preparation, if you've practiced in front of the mirror and you've got all your footnotes and sources and quotes and singers? So it's all interconnected, really, the behind-the-scenes preparation, the keeping calm, the being confident, doing your homework, the practice and preparation. And I give the example. Uh, we don't have time to get into it now, but I urge people to read the book. The chapter on practice preparation starts with the story about Demosthenes. And Demosthenes is crucial to anyone who wants to learn to be a public speaker because Demosthenes was not a good public speaker. People say to me, Mehdi, it's easy for you to write this book. You were born this way. You came out of the womb arguing. You're a natural born orator. I don't agree with that. I think we've all worked to where we've got to be. And I give the example of Demosthenes, who's considered today by many to be the father of rhetoric, a complete badass debater. But he was awful when he started out. He would lose trials. He would give speeches that bored people. He had a stutter and a stammer he couldn't get rid of. He had a shortness of breath that affected his projection of voice. What does he do? He builds an underground cave. He spends six months down there standing in front of a mirror with pebbles in his mouth so he can become the public speaker we know him today. Last question. Tell me about, and the Beatles saying, and in the end, the love you make is equal to the love you take. You say, in the end, people deserve a grand finale. So we'll end this Yes. And and your book, tell us about the grand finale. What, what grand finale is what l is lacking in far too many presentations, speeches, debates, arguments in our time. I have been to too many events, Michael. I've taken part in too many conferences, panel events, speeches, in which speakers will give a great presentation, great facts and figures, wonderful topic. And then it comes to the end and it's a flat. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you for coming. That's me. I'm done. I'm out of time. That's all we have.
That is not how you end your presentation. That is not how you end an argument. The end is absolutely crucial. Aristotle talks about the end being the place where you've got to deploy your pathos. You've got to really rouse people. And there's a famous saying, people may not remember what you said, but they will remember how you made them feel. You've got to make them, you've got to leave them wanting more, but you also got to leave them roused inspired, maybe with a call to action. What are you going to do today? How are you going to change things today? What are you going to do when you leave this room? What are you going to do when you switch off this TV show and stop watching? Are you going to go and do something based on what you just heard? So you really got to leave people on a high. And I talk about different ways you can do that. Again, by telling a story, by using a quote, by giving them a call to arms so that it doesn't feel like everything is over, so that they feel that they're taking what you've said and they're taking it away with them. So you've really got to leave them on a high. If you leave them uh, on anything other than a high, then you've really failed as a public speaker and you've probably lost that argument. Isn't the Broadway maxim, leave them singing? Leave them singing, leave them wanting more, leave them on their feet. I quote Sam Seaborn from the Westwick. You got to get people on their feet. The grand finale ideally wants to come with a standing ovation. That's the moment where you want people on their feet Uh, you know, really responding to you from their toes. Thank you, Mehdi. The book is Win Every Argument, The Art of Debating, Persuading, and Public Speaking. I'm very grateful for you having spent time with me today. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Michael. Appreciate it. That Said is produced by Compro and the Museum of Public Relations. Theme music by Sam Post. Please let us know your thoughts by writing to us at that said Zeldin at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening. For that said, I'm Michael Zeldin. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same-game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager, only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C.